Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Barbara Tversky. Barbara is an emeritus professor of psychology at Stanford University and professor of psychology at the Teachers College at Columbia University. She's also the president of the Association for Psychological Science, and she has published more than 200 scholarly articles about memory, spatial thinking, design, creativity, and she regularly speaks about embodied cognition at conferences. And she was married to one of the most famous and influential psychologists ever, Amos Tversky, who partnered with Danny Kahneman in all those studies of judgment under uncertainty, and he would have certainly won the Nobel Prize along with Danny had he lived. Anyway, Barbara and I talk about her new book, Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought, and we talk about um, many topics in this vein. We talk about the, the evolution of mind prior to language and the way in which our sense of space and motion have governed our capacity for thinking. Uh, we talk about the importance of imitation and gesture, the sensory and motor homunculi in the brain, the information that's communicated by motion, the role of mirror neurons, the sense of direction, natural and unnatural categories, and the way in which our categorical thinking is derivative of our sense of space. We talk about cognitive trade-offs and other topics. And now, without further delay, I bring you Barbara Tversky. I am here with Barbara Tversky. Barbara, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. So you have written a fascinating book. I think our conversation will be largely focused by your book. And the book is Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought. But before we jump into the, the book itself, can you summarize what your intellectual history looks like? What have you focused on and, and uh, who have you been? Well, I won't go back to childhood. Let me start with graduate school in psychology. There's a long story before that. But when I entered cognitive psychology, and it was an exciting time, everything was open, brilliant people were around me, the language was king. And in many ways, it still is. And that came from many sources. It came from propositional thinking and philosophy. It came from Chomsky and language. And both of those areas were very much on everybody's mind, exciting us. It came from our own intuitions that somehow, when we're thinking, we're talking to ourselves. And even that, so that seemed wrong to me. There's so much thinking that isn't that. And how do those th thoughts come? And how do the words come? They just pop in our mouths. And there, it came from psychology, where people were showing that the length of a verbal description predicted your memory for the visual world. So all that struck me as incomplete. We have a huge memory for faces, most of us. We can remember faces that we haven't seen in years. We can't begin to describe them. Same with scenes. And if you think phylogenetically and brain-wise, space in one way or another, and it's multimodal, 
occupies half the cortex. Mm. It, it was around evolutionarily long before language came. So it struck me that, it, first of all, it must have its own logic that's different from language, and that, if anything, space served a foundation for language and thinking, not vice versa. So it's, mm. it's, that governed more or less what I was doing. At first, it was intuitive. Later, I realized it was pretty systematic, and that helped me carve future research. But it, it, in many ways, spatial thinking was marginalized because of the hegemony of language. So people thought it was maybe like music or like smell, some specialized interest, mm. but not central. What seems to have changed that, and now everybody's jumping into space, was the Nobel Prize in 2012 to O'Keefe and the Moshers for place cells and grid cells, which seemed to capture our spatial thinking. And then very recent research has shown that those same that play, cells in the hip, hippocampus don't just gather information from all over the cortex to code a place, but they also code events in time mm. and, they, and people, again, gathering multimodal information from the cortex, and that those place cells are mapped in a two-dimensional array on the grid cells. So the grid cells in rats map space, but in human beings, they seem to map conceptual relations, temporal relations, social relations. So th that helps me argue that spatial thinking is the foundation of thought, mm. not the whole edifice, but the foundation. But that's taken a long time. Hmm. Well, this is this is fascinating. I, I, at first glance, I think we can easily argue about the primacy of space and movement through space because just just in evolutionary terms, if you, if you can't move, if you can't sense the environment around you and respond with any action in that space, there's no basis to evolve intelligence or anything else. Intelligence only matters because you can do something with it that affects your survival, a sense of space and the world and a capacity to move within it had to have come online very, very early. And you know, as we know, you know, long before language does, the point you made about describing faces is fairly revelatory about the, with regard to the, the impotence of, of language compared to a memory for, for, in this case, the visual object of a face, which we know is, is represented uniquely in the brain, when you imagine trying to describe a person's face so that others could recognize it on the base of your linguistic description, apart from you know describing someone who has a, a huge scar or you know is missing an eye or something, I mean, it's just it's com a completely hopeless task. And yet, as you say, we instantly recognize faces out of among the thousands or tens of thousands, we, we might recognize instantly. So, and I'm just going to kind of just feeding you more areas where we might go here. The other thing that occurs to me is that our sense of space is really the foundation of our ontology, our sense of what is real or what exists. When you think of the existence of something, you're really thinking of, a, of 
you know, by default things in space, and then there there are abstract ideas or abstract quantities that people, you know, for, you know, philosophers have wanted to argue for millennia now that ha- have some existence, but because it's not obvious where they exist, that has always been somewhat inscrutable. So when you, when you think of the, uh, things like numbers, right? I mean, do, does the number seven exist? In what sense is the number seven an invention? In what sense is it a prior reality? Well, the impediment there to our thinking about this seems to be the question of where are the numbers? You know, without people, where would the numbers be? And you know, so, so I, I would I would add that that our sense of what is real and what what can be real is also anchored to this this prior sense of space. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you've yeah. you've gone over a lot of what I tried to do in the book. And number is fascinating because animals, many animals, many species, every day there's something new or another new animal that can count or not really count, but estimate quite accurately. Mm-hmm. So animals without speech, without any complicated language like ours, can solve all kinds of fascinating problems that are very difficult to solve. Babies can do that, and all of that seems to be without language. So there are other ways of thinking that aren't language, and number seems to be tied very much, as you suggested, to space. Those of us who have number words, and not every language has number words, tend to line up numbers on a line. The spacing between numbers affects how we collect terms in algebra. If you look at the notation system that we now use, and there were many notation systems that preceded it that weren't as successful, the notation system depends on space. The most right-hand column are the, are the ones, and to the left of that are the tens, and to mm. the and left of that are the hundreds, and so forth. And that spatial way of arraying numbers becomes essential to to our thinking, and we do it without even realizing. That's one of the reasons that, why the Roman numerals screwed everybody up. There are many things you can't do well with Roman numerals. Right. They use space in a complicated way, yeah. right, yeah. That, that didn't work. Right, exactly. So, right, space is underlying how we array things in the mind and how we then array them in the world. Our natural state of awareness of ourselves in the world presents the body as a kind of object in the world for us. You know, most people feel that they're... they're interior to the body in some ways, the subject, and that their, their body is out there among the other bodies, you know, and, and vulnerable to the, the impositions of the environment. How do you think about our sense of embodiment? So that, I've got five different tracks running mm-hmm. in my mind. I'll see if I can keep them and organize them. First, I avoided that term because it's used so differently by different thinkers and because it's become a buzzword and I always worry about buzzwords. Mm -hmm. They're first celebrated and then vilified, as any fad is, so I worried about that. And I thought if I brought it up in a in a book meant for the general public, I'd have to go through all that philosophy and what did Andy Clark mean? What did David Kirsch mean? What did Larry Bob 
and I didn't want to do that. Right. But I do think I've shown many phenomena where the body is involved in thinking. Certainly the mirror neuron system that we, we internalize. Facial expressions that we see, we internalize actions that we see in our own motor system. And often that gets expressed in squiggling, in moving the body in one way. We also imitate, and that is a way of thinking, and it's a way of remembering, and it's a way of understanding. So that's one component of embodiment. Another that I've looked at and other people have looked at is gesture. And there were re-externalizing internal thoughts by setting up some sort of spatial motor, spatial motor representation of whatever it is we're thinking about. So if you ask someone for directions, they'll almost inevitably use their arms mm. and their head to indicate how you should move. And often those gestures say more than the words do. The words are more brutal. People can't necessarily express that information. Well, in words, they forget turns and so forth. So you want to watch the, the gestures, and usually we do, even implicitly. We somehow pick them up without conscious awareness that we're looking at them or when we're making them, that we make them. So those gestures can serve your thinking. They can also serve my own. Mm. So if you sit on your hands and try to describe a route, a complicated route to somebody else, you're probably going to have trouble doing it. And we brought that phenomenon into the laboratory. We had, and I wish I could show you the videos because they're quite fascinating. We asked people, we put people alone in a room. They were reading complicated descriptions of space, locating eight or nine landmarks in and an array, and either you're walking through it, and this is on your right, and that's on your left, and now turn right, and now you see that sort of root description or a north-south-east-west description. So people had to read these. They're hard. We were going to test them. And while they're doing it, 70% of our subjects, of our participants, are staring at the screen, and their hands are essentially sketching a map. Mm-hmm. So that's an abstraction, right? It's yeah. lines, lines for paths and, and points they stamp on the table for places. People do it quite differently, though the lines and dots are pretty similar. We've done the same for explanations of mechanical systems, like how a car brake works. And again, people are reading it. They're enacting it with their body, often in huge gestures sometimes smaller. People, again, do it differently. And when we tell people to sit on their hands while they're reading, they perform worse on the tests. Hmm. So it's not, it's 70%, it's not everybody, but a good portion of people spontaneously gesture. They're not looking at their hands. So somehow that representation, that encoding is spatial motor. It isn't visual. And again, if they do it, they're better. 
blind yeah. children gesture. Yeah, that's fascinating. And again, that's not our research, but again, it's, and they can't know that their gestures are communicating something to you or they're unlikely to at four years old. So it, it seems to be helping their own thinking. And that feels like a mystery to me, that those actions of the body that are actually abstractions are helping you comprehend and remember. And when you watch these people gesturing, you get the feeling, first of all, you see them thinking, and that's exciting, mm -hmm. but you get the feeling that the gestures are translating the words into thought. Yeah, no, I, I can feel that internally sometimes when I speak, that gesturing is helping me complete a thought, and that if I were prevented from gesturing, it would be a kind of impediment. Right, yeah. right, right. So, but words, too, I'm happy with. I use them a lot, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I rather like them. But if you look at our language, it's, again, expressing actions on thought. We raise our ideas, we put them forth, we tear them apart. These are all ways we talk about objects. So we're thinking of ideas as objects and acting on them. Lakoff and Johnson went through many of these metaphors, and Talmy and other people before him, or before them. But there almost isn't another way of talking about thought, mm. except as actions on objects. So the, the role of action and the and the ways in which we represent it and and the body that can can perform it so much of this is counterintuitive and and unconscious and, and some of it's in principle unconscious some of it i think we can become conscious of or, or we can become conscious of some of the some of the related facts i mean so i'm thinking of things like the the sensory and motor homunculi in the brain which is the, the strange proportions with which various parts of the body are represented and and tied to action. I mean, so for instance, we we have a much most people will have seen this from a a psychology textbook. This is something you talk about in your book as well. But you know, we have much larger areas of neural real estate devoted to representing the the hands and the lips than the you know the feet, you know, or the the shoulders. And so that that the fact that those areas are are so much better mapped. Is is tied to the fact that we 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 do much more with 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 our hands and lips than than other parts of our body, and we and we we derive much more information. We can we can act on the world which with much more precision. And yet, it's not you know looking internally, you don't you you can't necessarily sense that your your sense of your body is is warped in that way, and 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 people are surprised. You know, when you can perform this experiment on yourself and see just how different your, your two-point discrimination is, you know, if someone puts, you know, two pencil tips on the palm of your hand, you can differentiate that, that it's two with those pencil points very close to one another. But if, you, if they do that on your back, you know, you, it's, it feels like one point even when there's something like, you know, I, I forget, an inch or a half an inch between pencil points. So it's it's not necessarily intuitive and, and available for direct inspection. And so too with things like 
I mean, you, you mentioned mirror neurons, and, and I mean, these, these are these are neurons in the brain that that uh, were discovered by Rizzolatti's group, and and actually one of my advisors at, at UCLA did work, Marco Iacoboni, on this topic, and you know, much has been made of mirror neurons, and, and perhaps too much has been made of them, but they're the regions of the brain, and and, and now more than one, which respond to the actions of others, and, and certainly a case can be made that we understand the actions of others, both their their intent, intentions and goals, by mapping them back onto our own bodies, you know, essentially moving in our imaginations as we as we see other people move. And I think I think this is something you say in your book. I mean, we we can notice this in the difference between the way experts will watch certain kinds of of behavior. I mean, if you're an expert in yoga or ballet or some sport, your brain will show a different response to the movements of a, of another expert performing those disciplines than a naive brain will because you know what it's like to move in that way. And and I, I think many of us can appreciate this in, internally from watching sports where it's different watching a sport that you've spent a lot of time playing yourself because you, you really you you know it from the inside and 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 it's it's just amazing to see the best people in the world perform that sport because you can sort of emulate what they're doing in your imagination but then they they exceed what you what you've ever done so i i guess i you know i, I just deluged you with a lot of of your own information but i guess you know i want to hear whatever you have to say about what's available to consciousness here for us in in how we represent the body and the, and the bodies of others and and our actions and the actions of others. So I'll start backward. Well, no, I'll go back to the beginning. You, mm-hmm. You've summarized a lot of things that I wanted to say and things that I've learned since then and frustrate me because mm-hmm. I would want to add them. So going back to the, to the homunculus map, which is exaggerated, as you say, and we did find that recognizing other parts of other bodies is often more tied to their neural size than it is to their actual size. So, and those were studies done long ago. If you look at children's drawings all over the world, they tend to be these tadpole drawings that are heads, Mm -hmm. big heads, and arms sticking out and legs sticking out and the rest, those, and feet and hands, often lots of fingers. And these, again, seem to be how children think of the body, even though what they're seeing is very different. So I Mm. think some of that is coming out nicely, that a child is drawing what they think, and they think of their body as the the really big moving parts and functional parts, and, and not so much the actual sizes. And I get frustrated when parents want drawings to be, or teachers, to be more realistic. I mean, there's something to learn from drawing realistic things, but I also appreciate the expressiveness of drawing what you think. And Mm. certainly modern art is full of that and charming and frightening and I mean, those kinds of abstractions that, that are always fascinating. So that's bodies. One research project that I admire, and this is related to the mirror system is work of Maggie Schifrau and her colleagues. And she brought, so there are these point light demonstrations. You take somebody in a lab, dress them all in black, 
put lights at their joints Mm -hmm. and ask them to jump, play ping pong, dance, do all sorts of different things. When observers see those light arrays statically, they make no sense at all. You hardly even know it's a body. But when they move, as they naturally move, you can see it's a man, it's a woman. You can see if somebody's happy. You can see if somebody's heavy. You can pick all that up from these lights, and there are fewer than 10 of them scattered at the joints. You pick up all that information, and you pick it up quickly, again, implicitly. And it helps small women like me walking dark streets at night to pick up somebody else's movement quickly so I know if I'm in, in danger in some way or not. Mm. So those, those skills we need quite quickly. What Shafrar and her colleagues did was bring in pairs of people, friends, and have them do these different videos and bring them back three months later and watch those videos. And they were watching videos of themselves of their friend and of a stranger who was part of another couple. And their task was to identify what the people were doing, playing ping pong or dancing, and that they did pretty well. But they were also asked, who is it? And naturally, not surprisingly, they were better at identifying their friends than perfect strangers but they were best at identifying themselves. That's actually kind of counterintuitive because you, you spend less time actually seeing your own, certainly your, your, your gross body movements. I mean, you don't actually see your leg movements very much or your body moving through space. So that's, that's kind of surprising. I agree. It's surprising. And you, you, so, so what's the theory? And th- there isn't a better theory than, than mirror, that you watch that movement, you implicitly map it onto your own body and the way your body moves, and it feels right. Yeah. It's like trying on a, a piece of clothing and it fits. And here it's trying on a pattern of motion and it fits. It feels like me. So that that is, I think, counterintuitive, as you say, and, and quite surprising and relates certainly to the work that was done later on recognizing an motor activation when you're watching something that you're expert in. The classic experiment was comparing caparea dancers with ballet dancers. Mm. And For both observers, both kinds of observers, watching either kind of dance did arouse the motor cortex, but the dance you knew aroused more. And that gets into your observations about athletics. And here, again, it's it's split-second inferencing that we're doing, nonverbal. There's no way in a fast-moving basketball game that you can figure out what your team is doing, what the other team is doing, what they're going to do, who's faking me, right? Who do I, how do I fake? I mean, the levels of complexity that are required for those sports are extraordinary. Mm. And, and again, split second, of course, they depend on expertise and practice and so forth. But none of that is, it's much too fast for words. It, it just couldn't happen otherwise. So 
yeah. that the athletics. So one more thing on the inferencing. This is work of a of a talented group in Genoa, in Italy, and I worked with them a little bit. But they did the major part of the work. They can show videos of an arm reaching for a bottle, and they truncate the video before your hand even touches the bottle. But you can tell from watching those truncated videos whether the person about to grasp the bottle is going to drink from it, is going to pour, or is going to give it to you. Hmm. And you know that before the hand gets there. So those intentions of other bodies, even normal people are reading very quickly. It turns out, and this, again, I, I learned later, that children on the spectrum have a harder time with that. Mm, yeah, without yeah. and and they also have a harder time making the movements. Yeah, and as as you know, mirror neurons have been implicated in in autism. You know, exactly spectrum deficits. Yeah, exactly, and in exactly that way. And to think that it's a motor action deficit that underlies this very deep and disorder that seems to have huge implications for people's lives is fascinating, right? Yeah. That it's a motor. And again, coming back to motor, it turns out that for people who are aging, and I belong in that category, moving is, is and moving in space is more essential to preserving cognitive function than doing crossword puzzles. Mm, nice. Right? That motion, again, is, is, is not just important for our immediate survival, but for our cognitive facilities, and certainly for emotional and, and social and just about every aspect of our lives. Yeah, I want to bring you back to, to sports for a second, because you referenced a study that I hadn't heard of related to this gesture study you, you um, just described with, with videos of reaching behavior. There was a video study of basketball players shooting free throws where they, w they would stop the video, you know, before the, the ball reaches the basket at, you know, at various distances from the basket. And it showed that basketball players were better than coaches and fans and you know, sports journalists at predicting which free throws would make it into the basket. So you have kind of an expert audience, but still the, the basketball players themselves were better at, at making these predictions based on the, the visual cues. It, it, right. It's probably being mapped in one way or another on their own body, and they've had enough practice. People talk about basketball players as being free-throw machines that they can sense whether it's going to make it or not. I mean, I, that study I don't think has been done, but it would be nice to do. What about sense of direction? I'm always... <laughs> I, I think we're we're all we've all been enrolled in, in a vast psychological experiment where we systematically degrade our sense of direction and also our sense of map reading because we're now totally dependent on GPS. But um, some people, you know, famously have great senses of direction, and some people have terrible ones. I can attest that my wife Annika has a sense of direction that's so bad it's truly. Perverse. I mean, it's, it's actually what's fascinating to me about her sense of direction is that it's reliably wrong. It's not just randomly wrong. It's just it actually contains information. She she wants to go more often than not in the wrong direction. That is just the diametrically 
opposite the direction we're supposed to be going in. And it's almost like she, she knows what the right direction is and then has to, has to flip it somehow to go, the, go in the wrong direction. Do you, uh, I don't remember if you touch sense of direction in the book, but... Well, indirectly, it, it, right. And the, again, there's a long answer there. And it's complicated. You can remember roots as, as procedures. You go down this street, turn right, turn left. You can have a more global map of the environment you're in, but you still have to place yourself in it. So mm. you have this overview perspective, and then you have this immediate surroundings perspective where you're placing yourself in it. And that's a trick that's hard, and harder for some people than for others. Russ Epstein at, at Penn has done beautiful work on, on the myriad components that it takes to navigate space and understand space. So there are levels of understanding space. And I have a suspicion that what your wife is doing is something that one of my kids and I sometimes do. And that's if you enter, a, if you go in a street or enter a store by turning left, when you get out, you turn left again. Mm. So then you're in the opposite direction. Right. As, as opposed to reversing the direction and turning right. So it's a kind of heuristic that, that is 90% or 180 off. And that might be what, what Annika's problem is. I have no idea. Yeah. My father was hopeless. He kept mm. getting us lost. And, and so it turns out that the, that ability to keep track of yourself in space is independent of other spatial abilities. And that's fascinating, too. The spatial abilities are a complex of things, and people have tried to make sense of them and interrelate them as some of it three-dimensional, some of it two-dimensional, is some of it imagining yourself moving, imagining an object moving. There are sensible ways of trying to make sense of the abilities, but they don't seem to make sense of the abilities. And navigation seems to be independent of these other spatial abilities. I want to also, I mean, going back to some of the threads that your, your question raised, the overview and the root view and perspective taking, because that's core, in many ways, core to our lives, taking other perspectives and taking other perspectives on the ground when I'm facing you and I have to explain something to you, and do I take your perspective or mine when I'm interpreting your behavior, or am I taking your perspective or mine, and then going above and getting a map of a territory. So we can think of those overview maps not just of a spatial array of places, but also of ideas. Mm. We said the grid cells map conceptual relations or social relations and, or political relations, and people can map their social networks, right? These are networks. They're points for people or ideas, and the lines between them are the relations between the people or between the ideas. And that's again like space. We navigate from place to place along paths. Yeah, I'm actually glad you raised that point about ideas because that, that's fascinating. If you'd like to continue listening to this podcast, you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org. 
you'll get access to all full-length episodes of the Making Sense podcast and to other subscriber-only content, including bonus episodes and AMAs and the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. The Making Sense podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support. And you can subscribe now at samharris.org. Thank you.